The following podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. We're doing this again, this true crime on Easy Street thing. Is that right? We're doing it again. Mm-hmm. So the 4th of July has come and gone. I hope everyone had a great holiday. Uh, some fantastic fireworks. The town of Cedar Bluff always puts on a great show. Always. Over the lake. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. So we've gotten that out of the way. Katie is finished with her vacation. How'd your vacation go? Yeah, how was that? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm All so right. glad. <laughs> yeah, me too. Glad you had a great time. We were stuck here in Cherokee County. Not a bad place to be stuck on the 4th of July weekend, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, it turned out pretty good for us. My name is Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist. Kelly Turner, not a doctor. Katie Givens, not a lawyer. And so today we're going to talk about a case that Kelly found for us mm-hmm. that takes place in Texas in the early 70s. Is 80s. that correct? It's early 80s. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I don't know anything about it. And we all take turns here being the dummy. Mm-hmm. And today is my turn. <laughs> so I'm just going to sit here and be the dummy today. Kelly, you have the floor. Okay. This did take place in the state of Texas in 1982, to be exact. So we're going to go to July the 14th. I originally researched this case to try to find something that happened during the month of July, particularly around the 4th of July. We were sort of looking, and it's a sort of play on the holiday. Yeah, we try to keep the calendar in mind as Mm -hmm. we do these. Kind of go with the theme of the month Mm -hmm. at hand. But I stumbled upon this case that that happened uh, July 14th, 1982, and did not realize what a rabbit hole I had thrown myself down. Yeah, I, I read the link that you sent, and I, I remember reading for about 15 minutes, scroll, and I'm scrolling. Scroll, and, and scroll. The, and the little cursor over on the right that tells me how much progress I have made down the scroll is barely moving at all. It wasn't very far, was I it? I think it was about 20,000 words. It was almost like a book. It was. It was a long story. There's a lot of moving pieces. This thing was broken into different segments based on the different uh, people involved in the case, yes. the victims and the prosecutors and the police. And, yes. Uh, and we, so, we very think, interesting. Yes. We think for the moment that this will be a two-parter. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we like to fly by the seat of our pants from time to time. Yes, we do. And it it might be more than a two-parter, but we're going to try to make this a two-parter. Okay. All well, right. let's let's get it on. Let's do it. On July the 14th at 6.30 p.m. on a summer evening in 1982, Patrol Sergeant Truman Simons was driving through downtown Waco, Texas, when he received a call that a body had been found at Spiegelville Park near Lake Waco. Simons learned that two fishermen had spotted the body near the foot of a tree. They initially thought it was a prank or a sleeping drunk or even a mannequin. You hear that a lot when people discover a body. What's the last thing you expect? We thought it was a mannequin. Right. Because you're not thinking that's a body. Right. Yeah. We might. Because yeah, of considering of us doing the, this. this hobby that we have, we of might ours. think it's a body and it's really just, you know, a stick. And or it's something. really, it's like, oh my gosh, there's a body. It's actually a mannequin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but they initially think that this is a mannequin or a sleeping drunk. It's the, it's a young man. He's bound and gagged. He has sunglasses on that are 
they're crooked on his nose. So if you can imagine, that's a terrifying sight. If you yeah. think that's something out of a Stephen King novel. Yeah. Um, so he has on an orange shirt. It's stained with blood. He has been stabbed multiple times. He's a teenage boy. They can tell just by looking at him. He had on jeans, the orange shirt that I said, the glasses, they were aviated glasses. And he was eventually determined to be 18-year-old Kenneth Franks. Franks had been reported missing earlier that day. Now, immediately they realized that Kenneth Franks had last been seen with two girls, two 17-year-old girls. Okay. So that's, they're immediately thinking, we need to keep looking because those girls are missing too. Raylene Rice, age 17, with blonde hair, and Jill Montgomery, age 17, with brown hair. Both girls were from Waxahachie. Texas, which is about an hour away from Waco. Okay. Okay. As they continued to search the area, they found the body of Raylene Rice. She also had multiple stab wounds, was bound and gagged. She was nude except for a bra that was tied around her right leg. They also found the body of Jill Montgomery there in the park. She was bound, gagged, stabbed multiple times and nude, but Jill's throat had been slashed. She still had on her class ring, her high school class ring mm. from Waxahachie. All three had been bound with shoelaces and strips of towel and stabbed a total of 48 times. Many of the stabs were shallow, which led investigators to suspect that they had been tortured. Simons sensed that Jill Montgomery was the main target, mainly because she had more stab wounds than anybody and her throat had been slashed. Okay. When this was reported on the news the next day, the town residents, they started locking their doors. They're, they're pushing for curfews. Um, it, the, the area of Waco is a, I mean, I think they have about 100,000 residents. That sounds about right. There, by the time this, these bodies were discovered, there had been multiple murders mm. in Waco already. That year? That year. Okay. And, but the, the cops who worked this case said this was the worst one. That year. They had already, these are experienced cops. They've seen multiple murders. They're saying, this is the worst thing we've ever seen. Yeah. To us, this would be considered a big city police department. Yes. I mean, considering where we live around here. Yes. And so, this area that is used to having so many murders every year, they're freaked out by this. They're wanting to have curfews, lock Mm -hmm. doors, things like that. So, it tells you what a, what a, a big deal this Unnerving was. to the entire community. Yes. Waco Police Department Lieutenant Marvin Horton was assigned the case. He was named head of a special investigative force of seven full-time officers. They immediately start getting leads, but most of these, quote, leads actually lead to nothing. Reports of a local biker gang called the Scorpions, and someone from there is bragging about the killings. Another report of someone giving a ride to an extremely nervous man with blood on his pants who had been walking along a nearby highway the morning after the bodies were found. Reports of rituals near the crime scene, a devil's cult in the area, all of these things, and they can't seem to get any traction with it. Everybody comes out of the woodwork with their best guess Absolutely. To help try and solve this triple murder. All of a sudden, everybody's suspicious looking, suspicious acting. Everybody's got blood on them. 
or what they think is blood on their pants right. and, you know, yeah. just having to sift through all of this has got to be a nightmare. Well, just like we talked about when we did the Atlanta child murders uh, the last few weeks, the, the community gets in an uproar. Everybody gets mm-hmm. nervous. Everybody wants something done immediately. It's not going to happen fast enough to, to suit these families or the, the, the mayor, the elected officials, the people who live there. It's just, it's not happening fast enough. Let's get to the bottom of this and do it quickly. Right. Investigators learned that the girls had driven from Waxahachie to Waco. The girls were driving Raylene's orange Ford Pinto, where they picked up Jill's last paycheck from Fort Fisher at the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum. She was a tour guide there. Uh. The check was cashed at a supermarket. That was a thing you could do in the (laughs) 80s and 90s. Absolutely, it was. You could get your paycheck. And go to your local supermarket. I worked at a supermarket in the 80s, and every Friday, they had to make sure they had extra cash uh, in the the till box at the customer service desk because a lot of folks came in and cashed their paychecks. That's right. Now, that's not really a thing. No. No. And a lot of places, a lot of, I'm sorry, and a lot of places have direct deposit. So people yeah, don't even nobody know even sees their paycheck yeah. anymore <laughs> to have to cash it, but they cashed it at a supermarket and then they drove to Kenneth's house. Now Jill Montgomery and Kenneth Franks they knew each other from a place called the Methodist Home. This was in Waco and it was a boarding school for troubled and academically challenged kids. Both of these kids had struggled with dyslexia. They both had struggled with uh, a separation in their family. They both had behavioral issues, as sometimes happens when you have a divorce or you have things like that that happen. And and so they both were in this Methodist home for a while, and they started dating there. But at the time of this crime, they were just friends. Okay. And they had plans to go to Cone Park. I am... Calling it Cone Park, that's what I heard from listening to another podcast. But this particular podcast reported that they called the area and trying to figure out how to actually pronounce this mm. park. And no one of those businesses in that area knew what they were talking about. So this really? may not even be a park there today, but it's, okay. it's spelled K-O-E-H-N-E. Oh, that sounds like Cone. Cone, yeah. yeah. So we're going to say Cone Park. But they were going to go there and hang out. This is what Kenneth told his father. His father originally did not want him to go. He wanted them to stay at the house and hang out. At, they had a pool there. Okay. And because Kenneth was in summer school. And this was on a Wednesday. And he wanted him not to be out so late so that he would make it to summer school the next day. I got you. However, as teenagers often do, they, they beg and they plead and they bargain. And, and so he was allowed to, to just go on. Okay. So he goes with the two girls to Cone Park and hang out. Cone Park was directly across the lake from Spiegelville Park. And that's where they were found. Mm-hmm. Right? They were found okay. in Spiegelville Park. Okay. But it's, you, you can get there in a vehicle from Cone Park to Spiegelville Park. It's it's kind of a drive. You have to go around, go over a bridge, or you can get there by water. Okay. It's quicker if you drive. Okay. As I understand it. But you can go across the lake and get to it. So they several witnesses saw the three arrive at Cone Park. Um, it was a place for teenagers to go. They would smoke, drink, hang out, you know, other things. 
Certainly. The park. Yeah. You know, as you as you know about teenagers sometimes. Several witnesses saw them arrive there at Cone Park and Raylene's car was actually found there. But no one saw them leave. No one knows how they got over to Spiegel. No one Park. knows if they took a boat or if they made that drive around the lake that you just nope. mentioned. Nope. But people could vouch for the fact that they arrived at the park. No her, idea. Her car's still there. And her car's still there. Yes. All right. Investigators could not determine how they got from Cone to Spiegelville. There was no evidence of a boat. There were no tire tracks near the gate of Spiegelville Park. There were Bud Light cans, a few of them found near Raylene's body, but there were no fingerprints. The grass around the girls was flattened, suggesting they had struggled with their killer or killers, mm-hmm. but no knife and very little blood on the ground. So they were convinced that. They had been killed somewhere else. Okay. Maybe brought there, or maybe they had been bound and tortured somewhere else and brought there and then killed there. It, there just was not a lot of evidence. Right. Around the They weren't body. sure they had a crime scene, but they had, they had, where bodies had been dropped, but that might not have necessarily been the crime scene itself. Yeah, they just were not sure. The medical examiner determined that the girls had been sexually assaulted, but no semen was found anywhere. And I, I find that perplexing. Mm. I yeah. I mean, I guess so. Seems people weren't as careful back then because you didn't have the DNA evidence that, you know, right. you do now. But there wasn't any. Yeah. There wasn't any anywhere around. So investigators interviewed between 150 and 200 people, but had very little evidence or clues and they could not determine a motive either. Yeah, it seems random. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very random to them. Simons was not assigned to the investigation team. Remember the patrol officer we talked about in mm-hmm. the, at the beginning. However, he spent the majority of his free time searching the woods and talking with individuals. They believed, as I said, they were killed somewhere else and staged there. The police had developed a few suspects, including Terry Lee Harper, also known as Tab, which was a local tough guy with a long record of assaults. They had also recovered a few hairs from the bodies of the teenagers, but the hairs did not implicate anyone in particular. And eight weeks into the case, there was simply not enough evidence to make any arrests. Though the Waco Police Department would continue to respond to new leads, the investigation was now officially inactive, according to the police report. So Simons is going to request to take over this case, and that's going to be granted to him. Now he's using his free time. He's become obsessed with uh, okay. solving this. Okay. And we, so they, they give him control. We've talked it. about other folks like that. Remember when we did the Beatrice Six, there was this... Yeah gung-ho police officer who wanted to get to the bottom of it. Yep. Okay. Before long, they found a tip from Lisa Cater, a 17-year-old who had lived at the Methodist home with Kenneth and Jill. Now, during an interview with investigators, she named a man Munir Deeb, who she had said did not like Kenneth at all and even became angry at the mention of his name. Now, Simons knew that Deeb, he was a 23-year-old Jordanian, 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 yeah, is from Jordan, yes, is that, immigrant, who ran the Rainbow Drive-In, which was a convenience store across the street from the Methodist home. 
He walked with a limp. He also went by the nickname Lucky. He's not very lucky if he walks with a limp. He does. All right. Simons and Bayer, which is another investigator. Okay. Set out to look into this individual. There had indeed been bad blood between Deeb and Kenneth. Kenneth had shouted obscenities at him. He called him a slur name, made fun of his limp. So yeah, this guy, you know, he didn't like Kenneth. I don't know that I would like Kenneth either. I don't think I would either. And and this is the guy who owns the convenience store. Yep. This is Munir Deeb. His okay. last name is Deeb. The source of the conflict, as reported to investigators, was a 16-year-old Methodist home resident named Gail Kelly, who frequented the Rainbow Drive-In and whom Deeb had offered a job. Now, Deeb had an unreciprocated crush on Gail Kelly, yet she was close with Kenneth. So she talked with Kenneth about, he likes me, I don't really like him. Mm -hmm. And Deeb really doesn't have any business liking her. She's 16 years old. However, let me... Let me say this. In the state of Texas in 1982, the age of consent was 16. Okay. It's now 18. But at this time, this was not uncommon. He wasn't he creepy for that. Yeah, he wouldn't be immediately labeled a pedophile Correct. for having a crush on a 16-year-old girl. She's an adult as far as the state of Texas is concerned. Yes, and he's 23, so okay. he's not, That's not too bad. that old. But now, this would not be... This would be illegal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seven years that. is nothing, right, Katie? As a... Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Okay, that's okay. As a mother of a 16-year-old, this is too much of an age difference. Yeah. Let me just okay, say sure that. is. A, yeah. Um, but yeah. at the time in the state of Texas, it was not. Okay. Nothing illegal going on for him to like her, but she did not like him and she had obviously talked to Kenneth about that. And so then this animosity starts between Kenneth is, is, you know, popping off things to Deeb and he's telling him, you know, calling him slurs and making fun of his limp. You know, she doesn't like you, that kind of thing. Right. So witnesses say that when Deeb learned of the murders, he actually laughed. And said he was glad that Kenneth was dead. Wow, he really did not like Kenneth. He really did not like Kenneth. So Simons and Bear sat down to interview Gail Kelly, who had also been a friend of Jill's. Kelly was a slim brunette. She answered their questions, and Simons, in the middle of their interview, is going to stop the whole interview, and he's going to say, you look like Jill. Has anyone ever told you that you look like Jill? Ah, And she says, yeah, people have said before that we could be sisters. Now, Bayer, the other investigator there, doesn't really see the resemblance. But Simon thinks there's there's a big resemblance there. So. And he's got nothing else to do. I mean, not nothing else to do, but he's the guy who's spending his time trying to get to the bottom of this case. Yes. So Bayer's already thinking, hmm. There's something weird with that. You know, this Deeb likes this girl, Gail Kelly. There was some friction with Kenneth. She is very similar looking to Jill. Jill was the main target. You kind of see where he's trying to go with that. Now, later that evening, a panicked Gail Kelly is going to call Simons at one in the morning and she's screaming, he did it, he did it. When he calms her down and says, please explain to me what you're talking about. 
She says that that evening, Deeb had taken her and a friend to a gory movie. And afterward, Deeb had confessed, I did it. He said, I killed them. But then he apologized and said he was joking because she's getting upset. These are her friends. Yeah, that have he's, been killed. He's making a terrible joke, at least as making, far as he's concerned. Correct, and then he's saying, "No, I'm just kidding." Now, this hangout time at the movies did not happen right after the murders. There had been some time passed. You know, I've sort of walked you through the timeline, and the case had kind of hit a halt, and then Simons had taken it over, and some more interviews it's, had happened. It's inactive and, at this point, like you said. And Deeb had offered Gail Kelly a job at this rainbow rainbow drive-in mart. A a convenience store. Yeah, they were hanging out at the time. They were were kind of friends by now. Okay. And so they go see this movie, and then he's saying, I did it, I killed him, and then he's saying, I'm just joking. And so she calls Mm -hmm. Simons, very upset about that. Now, Simons told the chief that Kelly had also said that Dean was about to flee the state because the bank was foreclosing on his store. And he's wanting an arrest to happen immediately. Okay. Because he's afraid. he's gone. Mm Mm-hmm. Bayer, the other investigator, was not so sure about this. There are also other investigators on this case, Salinas and Horton. And then there was a Sergeant Robert Fortune. They did not believe there was nearly enough evidence to make an arrest. And they're not as gung-ho about this as Simons is. He's becoming obsessed with solving this case, it Mm -hmm. sounds like. Yes, and they did admit that Simons, quote, played things close to the vest, and that bothered some people, end quote. But however, the chief, convinced of Deeb's flight risk, approved the arrest, and that night, Simons brought the store owner in for questioning. So, Deeb is going to claim he had nothing to do with this. I am innocent. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about this. Um, Simons is going to continue to talk with him, but he is going to come to the conclusion that Deeb couldn't have done this alone. He's one guy. He's not a very big guy. There are three dead, fully grown teenagers, and this guy walks with a limp. Yeah. Yeah. How are you, and, and to stab, a gun is one thing, but to tie up three teenagers, rape two of them, stab them all, I don't want to sound, I, I don't know how this will sound, but that's a lot of exertion for yeah. a small guy with a limp. You're, you're wrestling these teenagers, mm-hmm. you're tying them up, you're bound, you know, bound they're gagged, you're stabbing them 48 times and you're raping two of them. And they're moved, right? And you move all three across the lake. And it seems like they've been moved across the to lake. To a park. And you're one small guy with a limp. So even Simons is like, okay, this is not yeah, making that, a whole that makes, lot of sense. That makes so, perfect sense so far. So Simons goes back to Lisa Cater, who had originally mentioned Munir Deeb. And he asked Cater if she could think of any other suspects. Like buddies of his. Can you think of anybody else? Can you give us anything? She mentioned a rough biker character known as Chili. Chili. 
Now, Chili's real name was David Spence. Well, she first says, David, I think. And he hung around the convenience store. So Simons goes back to Muneer Deeb and he asks him about all of his acquaintances. Okay. And he says, do you know a man named Chili? And Deeb says, yes. He often spent time at the Rainbow Drive-In. So Simons is going to take a break. And Fortune... There's a lot of names here. I'm so sorry. He's an, he's another part of this this team of people that are interviewing all of these. So, so he so works Fortune, for the police department. Fortune does. Okay. His last name is Fortune. He's also present for the investigation, and he says, "Well, I I've heard of this guy. I know this guy. They call Chili. His name is David Spence, and he was just arrested with his friend Gilbert." Melendez for cutting a teenage boy on the leg and forcing him to perform oral sex on Melendez. So Fortune is in there and he goes, I know this guy. So the next day, Simons is going to speak with Jill Montgomery, who was one of our victims. He's going to speak with her mother. Her mother is Nancy Shaw and her aunt, who is Jan Thompson. And he's going to tell them his theory. He's going to think that Gail Kelly had been the target all along. Now, Gail was the one that Deeb had the crush on. Are you following my timeline? Who looked like the other... Who looked like Jill Montgomery. Okay. Okay. So, he's going to say she was really the target, but because of a case of mistaken identity, they attacked Jill and Raylene and Kenneth had been caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Simons develops his theory after learning that two weeks before the murders, Deeb had taken out an accident insurance policy on Gail Kelly that paid $20,000 in the event of her death. Oh. Interesting. I guess she could still do that back then. She's one of his employees at this this service station. Okay, well, that may not be so And so he's going to take out this accident insurance policy on her. And he's going to also list himself as her common law husband, which is completely false. They don't even live together. Creepy. Mm-hmm. And so Simon's is going to say, okay, he took this out two weeks before the murders. Then he gets this chilly guy to help him with the murders because he is in love with Gail. I don't know why. I think, you know, yeah. whatever. He's he's spinning this web, and he says they mistake Jill for Gail Kelly. He's trying to come up with some something that makes sense because otherwise this case is completely confusing. I mean, you've got these three oh gosh, randomly yeah. killed teenagers. You got to mm-hmm. start because somewhere there's a story out there that makes sense. He's just trying to piece it together based on what he knows. Yep. So Bayer, one of the other investigators, says that. Simons thought Deeb would confess. He really, really believed that Deeb was going to confess. And so in the meantime, Munir Deeb's family hires a lawyer who pushed for a polygraph test. And after four days, Simons is going to agree to it. And after three hours of testing, the operator is going to come back and say, he's not lying. Mm. He passed the test. He passed it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, to... Many of Simon's colleagues, the results of this polygraph were no surprise. 
he, he, they weren't really focused in on this guy like Simons was. All the other people that were involved in this. And so they were saying, no, we're not really surprised that he passed the polygraph. We haven't made up our minds. Mm-hmm. And, th- and they even went so far as to sort of not really trust his tendency to build these cases on his own. They were like, this guy's kind of, he's leaving the rails a little okay. bit. Yeah. It's kind of how they're, they're thinking. They claim that Simon seemed to prefer the company of hustlers to that of his fellow cops. That's what they say. Quote, hustlers to that of his fellow cops. All right. I wondered if you I wanted thought to that was a, that back. Yeah. That's a quote. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and he was known among local law enforcement uh, for his distaste of rules. And so Horton, who is over this task force, is starting to get upset and very frustrated with Simon. So he's a loose cannon. Mm, good gosh. He doesn't like his fellow officers. <laughs> we don't like this guy. So there you go. All right. All right. So here's a quote. Uh, I'm going to read directly from the article that I used to research this. But Simons knew he was on the right track and he was going to see it through. Skeptics be damned. When Dave's lawyer asked him if the store owner was a suspect, Simons retorted, you bet your ass he's a suspect. He called the sheriff's office and asked if there were any openings as a jailer. It would mean a cut in pay and status, but Simons didn't care. He had a plan. David Spence was at the county jail awaiting trial for aggravated sexual abuse. If Simons had a job at the jail, he could get close to Spence and use him to solve the Lake murders. So he's going to quit his job, Mm -hmm. take a pay cut, just so that he can go hang out in a jail with a suspected murderer. Chili, which is David Spence. They call him Chili. His name's David Smith. So he's going to get a job as a jailer. So does he follow through on that? Yeah. Okay. He does. Soon after his interrogation of Dave, Simons headed over to the jail with Bayer to meet David Spence, also known as Chili. What do y'all want me to call him? Let's let's do Spence. You want me to call him Spence? Yeah. All right. He was friendly and fell into easy conversation with them. Simons even told him he was quitting the force. And Spence, who was completely unaware that he might be a suspect, offered to help with the investigation. How about I help you, he says. Hey, anything you need, pal. Mm -hmm. At the time of the murders, he'd been working at Burke's Aluminum next door to the Rainbow Drive-In. And his girlfriend, Christine Jewell, worked in Deeb's store. And Spence had spent many hours there hanging out and playing video games. Everybody just hangs out in the same neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Just okay. all right there. And so Spence says, you know what? I'm going to get my girlfriend, Christine Jewell, to ask around on the street about the murders. He's trying to help. Let's see what we can dig up. Okay. Spence was a middle school dropout with a fondness for beer, marijuana, and amphetamines. He married at 16, became a father of two by 18, and divorced at 20. He'd robbed a Fort Worth convenience store with a hatchet at 21. Good Lord. With a hatchet. With a hatchet at age 21 and served 15 months. By the time he got out of prison, he was all about the biker lifestyle. He got tattoos. He got some dice on his right arm and Harley wings on his left. And now at age 24, Spence had become more and more unpredictable and violent. But he was lonely at the jail, and he liked to talk. 
So this was perfect. When Simons comes in and wants to talk to him, he's like, great. This guy's ready to sit down, pull up a chair and have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Soon after Simons began his new job as a sheriff's deputy, working the graveyard shift from midnight to eight, he and Spence began having regular conversations, often about the deaths of the teenagers. Simons would allow him long phone calls with his girlfriend, Christine Jewell. Because she's out beating the streets trying to find out what she can about these mysterious murders. Sure she is. Okay. Sometimes they talk till three or four in the morning, but Christine never could seem to turn up with any new leads. Hmm. And so then after she, he would talk to Christine till late at night, then he and Simons would talk. They would just sit and talk sometimes till the sun came up. And Simons is quoted saying, I get people talking and then I shut up and listen. That's a good plan. But there's nothing to tell because Christine isn't coming back with anything. They're just basically taking advantage of this time that they have. That's what it sounds to like. To be on the phone together. Yeah. Now, Spence's lawyer in the abuse case had instructed him not to speak to Simons. Stop Good advice. talking to him. Yeah. Sure. But Spence ignores it. And when Spence's father asked Simons if he should hire a lawyer for his son for this murder case, the deputy said Spence didn't need to because he's not been charged with murder. A, a very uh, uh, ambiguous answer. Mm-hmm. So, Simons told Spence a few weeks after arriving at the jail that he was a suspect. He finally comes out after all this time and says, hey, guess what? You're a suspect. Now, Spence is completely caught off guard by this. He just comes out and says that to him. He comes out and says, you know what? You're a suspect. And Spence is caught off guard. But you know what? He enjoyed his time with the deputy so much that they continued their late night discussions. Oh, my God. Face slap to the forehead at this point. Spence claimed he'd had nothing to do with the murders. But Simons bided his time talking to other inmates and coming to the jail outside work hours. Now, fast forward to early January of 1983. An inmate named Kevin Michael. I think I'm just going to quit giving you names because it's just going to confuse. We, uh, there's so many names. It's going to confuse the hell out of everybody. But so this other inmate said that Spence had bragged about killing the teenagers. So now we've got some jailhouse testimony. Yeah, but we all know how that works. Mm -hmm. So, this inmate gives Simon some corroborating details, such as how Kenneth had been bound with shoelaces and Raylene had a bra tied around her leg. He also reported that Spence had suggested that Gilbert Melendez, Spence's co-perpetrator in the abuse case, had been involved. Mm, Somebody had to be. Mm Mm-hmm. And before long, other inmates were also coming forward with things Spence had told him. Uh, They said he had been in a satanic cult. Of course he had. Really? He'd been paid to kill the teens, but had killed the wrong ones. That, quote, a foreigner named Lucky had paid him to kill the three because a girl had dishonored him. Ooh. End quote. Now, Lucky is... That's Deeb. That's Muneer Deeb. That's, that's what I thought. Yeah, okay. that's the guy who owns the convenience store. hmm Simons decided to share these findings with Waco's new district attorney. The, the new DA had only been in office for a month and, and was 31 years old. So, a young DA. 
Uh, this DA was married with a son, was a Baptist preacher's son who would also preach sometimes himself. He had promised that he would be active in the courtroom, and his first trial as lead prosecutor was to be Spence's aggravated sexual abuse case. That he's already in jail for. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when Simons approaches him, he has high hopes that this guy's going to, you know, like what he's telling him because he's going to be prosecuting this guy anyway for this sexual abuse. But he was told by the new DA's assistants that this evidence is only hearsay and the testimony is not admissible in court. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to say, you don't really have anything, so you're going to have to give us something better. Well, this did not stop Simons. He's he's undeterred by this. He's going to keep going. So he felt that his relationship with Spence was the key to solving it. Spence had grown so dependent on their conversations that he would sometimes call Simons at home, waking him up to talk. Now, at the jail, Spence had taken to pacing back and forth. He was crying hysterically after each marathon phone call with Christine, his girlfriend, despairing that she was about to leave him. And Simons would just sit there and try to calm him down and just watch this unraveling start to happen. Now, when Christine Jewell finally does break things off with Spence. Oh, uh, so she does. He's mm-hmm. not just... Right. He just throws a fit. So much of a fit that he had to be given a shot of Thorazine. They had to literally... Is that a sedative? Mm-hmm. They had to subdue him. Calm him down. Mm-hmm. And so Spence has been quoted in this article as saying, the only friend I've got is the guy who's trying to kill me on this late case. Uh-uh. <laughs> it's the only friend. So the two men started discussing the idea that maybe, maybe Spence had a split personality. Oh, dear God. Really? And maybe Chili is David Spence's evil half. And Spence insisted that he couldn't remember murdering anyone, but he began to wonder if he really had. I'm starting to not like this Simons guy. And Spence is saying things like, did I kill them kids? And Simon says, I think you did. (gasps) And Spence says, then why don't I know I did? And so Simons is like, well, because Chili is your evil half. Is Simons from Beatrice, Nebraska, Oklahoma? Where was that? Um, so the new DA in early March of 19, where are we? 1983 now, Three, March. Yeah. The new DA announces that he's creating a task force to take a new look at the Lake Waco murders. Uh, despite issues with this Simons methods and the things that he's doing, he's going to include him on this team. This jailer. Yep. I mean, he's just a jailer now. He's also going to include two cops that are most familiar with it. We've heard their names before, but we've probably forgotten them in all the names. Salinas and Bayer. So they are also included on this And team. they don't think Simon knows what the hell he's doing, I'm guessing. Exactly. Okay. So this is going to be kind of an awkward arrangement for Simons and the Waco police officers because they weren't really on good terms when he left. Yeah, this sounds force. doomed to fail. 
So Bayer and Salinas decided they're going to focus on the rest of the city and leave all this jailhouse stuff to Simon. Yeah, he's, he's locked in there all day, every day anyway. Leave he's it alone. wrapped up in all of this. We're yeah. going to, you know, look at some other things. You play in the closet. We'll be out here solving the case. Now, remember I told you that uh, David Spence, also known as Chili, was in jail because he's going to go to trial for this sexual mm-hmm. abuse case. I'm with you. Now, he is found guilty in late March and given 90 years. 90 years. 90 years. Nine zero. Nine zero. Got it. He was allowed to remain at the jail because he was helping, quote, helping with Simon's investigation. So they're going to sentence this guy to 90 years, but let him stay in the jail so he can keep talking to Simon's. I, whatever. Simon's began to work on Gilbert Melendez. Now, this is the guy that was involved in the sexual assault case with Mm. David Spence. Right. Melendez was a tough 28-year-old from Waco who'd served time in the mid-70s for assault with intent to murder. Melendez had been given seven years after pleading guilty in the aggravated sexual abuse case. Now, he pleads guilty, so he gets seven years. Mm -hmm. Instead of 90. Instead of 90. Despite the fact that Melendez had denied any involvement in the Lake murders, Simons is going to begin to press the inmate. Simons was persistent, especially since he had made such, quote, progress with Spence. Yeah, lots of progress. Now, even though he was not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, he's going to talk so much about this split personality that, that David Spence or Chili has. But he's not also not a doctor. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> so, I don't like how this is. Yeah, I don't yeah, like where this is going. He, uh, he's going to tell Melendez, hey, things are about to get crazy. And you might want to consider talking. Typical bad cop, good cop, mm-hmm. lousy but cop. just one cop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So who later- has a split personality? <laughs> so later that day, when Simon's returned to see Melendez, he's... He says, okay, I was out there. I was out there when I, everything happened. But he was out there at Lake Spiegelville. Lake Waco. He basically well, said. With the park. I'm sorry, what was the name of the park? Uh, Spiegelville Park. Spiegelville. He, he basically okay. says that, that he was there when everything happened. Um, Simons had informed him that, you know, if you confess and you testify against Spence, then you would avoid the death penalty. Yeah, this is exactly how, I hate to keep saying the word Beatrice, but this is exactly the same mm-hmm. investigative uh, technique mm-hmm. that ended up with six people in jail who didn't do it. Right. So Melendez says, I'll testify. Now, Simons is going to have an interview with Melendez that he is going to record. And Melendez says the following. He and Spence have been riding around in Spence's car, drinking and smoking. When they went to Cone Park, there they saw the kids. Spence had enticed them into the car with the promise of beer and weed. Spence raped and stabbed Jill, then Raylene, and finally he killed Kenneth. He and Melendez drove the bodies to Spiegelville and dumped them there, and then they went home. Well, that fits everything. I mean, that that, that, it. If that's a true story, and I guess we'll find out if it is or not, but that makes sense. Now, one of the other investigators, Bayer, is going to point out a problem. When asked for details on Spence's car, Melendez said it was a station wagon. Yet, Spence hadn't bought 
his station wagon until two weeks after the murders. So he got that wrong. Mm-hmm. Simons went back to the inmate, even uh, taking him to Cone and Spiegelville Parks the next morning. And over two days, Melendez is going to give three statements. And it's going to change from time mm, to time. And, and, and there's going to be different yeah, times really. of arrival at Cone Park. It's, there's going to be some inconsistencies. And Simons is going to think that they're likely due to Melendez's drug and alcohol-addled memory. So anything yeah, that he can do. Because he's a doctor do, yeah. and he knows this. Plus the fact that Melendez claimed it had been Spence alone who did all the raping and killing. I mean, of course I was there, but he did all the raping and the killing and yeah. the everything. Melendez took two polygraphs that seemed to confirm his involvement, but then he also recanted his confession entirely. Probably they, after speaking with an attorney. Yeah, and then they no, sent he didn't, it. But he didn't fail the polygraph. It said that they seemed to confirm his involvement. So they must have asked him questions yeah. about, were you there? And he the didn't park. lie when he said yes, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and so after this, he's going to be, when he recants his confession entirely, they're going to send him on to prison. So you can't really stay in jail and continue to be part of this if you're saying, no, I wasn't part of this. In April of 1983, Simons got a surprise visit from Ned Butler, an assistant DA who had recently been hired to try capital cases. And he, he's going to tell Simons that soon he'd be able to tell the deputy whether his theory that Spence had killed the teenagers was correct. And this is a pretty cryptic message. But Butler was a big believer in forensic odontology, which is the study of bite marks. Oh, God, not bite marks. Bite marks. Butler had used this two years earlier to help solve a violent Amarillo murder in which the killer had bitten his victim. Now, when Butler first saw the Lake Murders file, he immediately asked Salinas if they'd check the bodies for bite marks. After studying the autopsy photos himself, he determined that several of the wounds on the girls' bodies did, in fact, look as if they had been made by human teeth. He had a mold taken of Spence's teeth, then personally delivered it and the photos to Homer Campbell, a forensic odontologist in Albuquerque who had solved the Amarillo case for him. Are you still following me, Scott? Barely. Did I lose you? Within days, Butler got remarkable news. They were certain it was Spence's teeth that made oh, the bite Oh, for mark. shit's sake. Really? Yep. I'm calling bullshit on that one. At last, Simons had, had confirmation all along. And, and even the DA was won over. The DA's like, okay, well, we got... On bite marks. We got this. Let's go for it. The task force now gathered momentum as investigators found witnesses who told of suspicious things that Spence had said the previous summer that he thought he had killed somebody and that he maybe raped two girls, but he couldn't remember. Investigators also had another suspect, Tony Melendez, which is Gilbert Melendez's younger brother. He's a 24-year-old who was wanted in Corpus Christi for robbery and rape. Tony had been taken into custody by the Waco Police Department for questioning about the Lake case and his brother's involvement and then sent to another county jail, though he insisted he had been uh, in another neighboring town painting apartments the day of the murders. He failed a polygraph, and jailhouse informants claimed they'd heard him say he was at Lake Waco. 
That October in 1983, the DA announced that his office was steadily putting together a puzzle where someone oh, it's is a puzzle, all right. Where someone is trying to hide some of the pieces. And somebody's trying to make up pieces that don't exist. One month later, the puzzle's finished. On November the 21st, 1983, a McLennan County Grand Jury indicted Deeb, Spence, and both Melinda's brothers for the murders of the three teenagers. The DA's office spokesman told the Waco Citizen, quote, we started with nothing and we have found pieces literally in the dark and fit them together. Now, Jan Thompson, who is Jill Montgomery's aunt, remember Jill is one of the victims, said, we were finally going to hear the real story. We were finally going to find out what happened to our kids. Oh, I don't know. Mm. I wonder about that myself. Well, we'll find out next week. We'll find out next week, won't we? That's going to be yeah, great. That's, that's right. What a great cliffhanger to leave it on. Mm-hmm. Um, can can we do it? Because we talked about maybe making this two or maybe three or, or more. You think we can do it in one more? I think we can do it. What do you think, Katie? Can we do it well, in one more? Katie doesn't have a damn clue. Yeah, she doesn't know anything more about it than I, I was do. I say, how much left of the <laughs> story is there? Is that, there just the trials, the criminal trials? Oh, then it's uh, Katie's job. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's going so to have to read that So she'll be the link. one who will make that call and see if we can get this done in two parters. But I've, t- I've, I've thrown us down a rabbit hole. Yeah, big time. Let's see if Katie can pull us out. Please, Katie, bring some rope. I'll try my best. I mean, I'm still... She's still trying to figure out who all the names are. Yeah, we're we're going to need a flow chart. I don't think that that was as bad confusing as you thought it was. Okay, good. No, you're good. We're fine. So, uh, social media, check us out on all of our different platforms. uh, TrueCrimeOnEasyStreet.com for a quick link to get to your favorite podcast platform and listen to our latest episodes. And I guess we will uh, finish this up next week. Mm -hmm. Good night, everybody.